Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Oh, no, I haven't got a beer. Oh, sorry. Hang on. Absolutely essential. Welcome to the latest Love Tennis podlet on Friday night here in Paris, where I'm living the rock and roll lifestyle. It's 10 past 11. I'm at home. I've had a shower and I'm in my sweats. Uh, Sweat might just be the word of the day at Roland Garros as well. Possibly the most humid conditions I've ever been in. Uh, barring a brief stopover in Singapore Airport in February, which might have been worse. Um, I'm joined by Calvin Beton, our resident tennis coach, who is uh, live from the NTC and from a, a rip-roaring success for his doubles partnership uh, at Surbiton into a final, Calvin. Uh, yeah, final tomorrow, so that'll be uh, interesting. Um, <laughs> yeah, do, you we'll get, do you get nervous about this stuff? You know what? I don't... I get, I get more nervous that, especially on grass, that something. We know my thoughts on grass court. I think it's rubbish, mm. especially the rubbish grass courts of Surbiton. I get more nervous that something unlucky will happen. Right. That you get, you know, you get into a position where, um, where you're the best. You know, they've been the best team this week in every match they've played, but you worry a bit on grass because the rallies are so short. The bounces are bad. You can catch a return late or something. And and little things like, I, I don't know whether people know, but on grass courts, the nets are a lot slacker. Oh, really? Because, yeah, because it pulls the, it pulls the net in. If, if you think about it on a concrete court, the holes yeah. that the net go in, they're solid. Yeah. Whereas on a grass court, it's, it, it pulls it in. So they, they have to tap, they're, they're usually very, very slack. Right. So you do tend to get a lot more net cords on grass courts. Yeah. Well, I didn't know that. That's very interesting. Yeah, most um, grass courts they take the nets down at um, at the end of the day because they don't want them pulling on the posts. Oh, there you go. Learn something new every day. Um, well, good luck to Julian and Henry uh, tomorrow up against Nedyesov and Koreshi. Um, well, one of whom I've heard of um, and who is a recognised doubles player. The other lad I don't particularly know, but um, we'll see. I didn't realise that Nedyesov is is fifty in the world. I think or something wow, like that. Okay. Um, and Ison Koreshi, who, who I know pretty well i know him pretty well because he's the same age as me <laughs> right okay it's uh it's dads against lads tomorrow the final in Surbiton, clearly um well let's talk about the bigger tennis going on here in paris with all due respect to the the service and challenger uh it was men's semi-final day which i always think is a great ticket to get hold of although i was then told today that the two semi-finals are on different tickets so if you wanted to see both semi-finals you had to buy two tickets, which would have set you back an extortionate amount of money. Um, and instead, what they had was a sellout for Nadal versus Verev and a load of empty seats at Rude versus Chilich, which I thought was a bit of a shame. But 
there you have it. Uh, these things happen, and there's been plenty of organisational cock-ups this year at the French Open. So we just put that one down on the list of things to improve upon. Uh, I, I probably don't need to tell most people that Rafa Nadal uh, was through to the, his 14th French Open final. 7-6, 6-all retired. Alexander Zverev suffering a really nasty-looking ankle injury on his right ankle on the very last point of the set before the tie-break, um, which never happened, of course. Uh, he was taken off in a wheelchair, which I'm not sure I've ever seen um, at the very highest level, um, certainly not for a long time. I, when they brought it out, I really thought he was going to refuse it, but he basically had no choice. Uh, he then came out to retire uh, on crutches, shaking the umpire's hand, Renault Lichtenstein, and then kind of saluting the crowd with one crutch, which is quite a sweet moment. Um, Calvin, it can be hard to elicit sympathy for Alexander Zverev at the best of times, but um, I suppose you have to feel sorry for any player who suffers an injury like that. Uh, yeah, a bit. Yeah, you know, it it, it looks pretty bad. Um, yeah. Like, I know that, like, I, I've been at, uh, obviously, I've been at Surbiton today, and after the match, you just saw all the players showing each other videos of what happened, mm. and then the faces and the expressions of the players who were watching the videos of what happened told you probably what the severity of, of it was. It's one of those things as well, I suppose, in an industry, it probably cuts a bit deeper because... You know, it's a sort of there, but by the grace of God, go we. Um, you see that happen to someone, you think, crikey, that could be me next week. I mean, we don't see a lot of trauma injuries in tennis full stop. It's it's pretty remarkable when they do happen. I remember Bethany Matic-Sands having a horrible knee injury um, a few years ago at Wimbledon, and she was on an outside court, and you could hear the screaming for, you know, courts and courts away. It was bad. Like, people stopped playing on courts next door. Um I mean, when something like that happens at a tournament, I, I do, do you think players... I mean, it's different now because there aren't many players left in this tournament, but does it sometimes people get a bit the heebie-jeebies? Um, I don't know, really. I think that you're thinking about it, but when you're running, you're not thinking about it and that mm. kind of thing. Um, what I'll say about the injury is... Um, you see a lot of ankle injuries, and I don't. It, look, it might be terrible. I don't mm. know, but ankle injuries tend like that. And again, I said the players were all watching the videos, and there's the still photograph that's going round uh, that a lot of people have shown. They ankle injuries do tend to look a lot worse than what they end up being. Mm. Your ankle is pretty flexible, and whenever I hear about an ankle, because I didn't see it when it happened, whenever I hear about an ankle injury, I always ask which way the foot went. Yeah, um, and a lot of the time, if if it goes the way that Zverev's went, they, there's a good chance it's not as bad as what it looks. Yes, it, it's you know to describe it, he was sliding to his right, and the yeah. foot caught in the clay, and he went over it. It's yeah, the way yeah. that almost anyone will have experienced just rolling their ankle a yeah, little yeah, bit like yeah. that. Yeah, um, the, the 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 worst tennis injury I've ever seen was Michael Stick, and he ran, and his ankle went the other way. Um, and yeah, it was, I remember watching the match live. It was some indoor tournament at the end of the year and mm. he was out for about 18 months. Wow. Um, but, um, yeah, if it goes that way and, and ankle injuries that, you know, even the screaming and he, he looked in a bad way and I, I don't wish to compare myself at all with Alexander Zverev <laughs> in, in any way, good or bad. Um, <laughs> but I've actually had a, I remember I went over my ankle really bad once and, 
I honestly thought I'd broke it. Um, I thought I broke it or there was serious ligament damage and I was in, it's the most pain I've ever felt. Mm. Um, and it was like, it took a bit, 10 days later, it felt a lot better. Yeah. And it turned out it was just a really, really bad sprain. Mm. But if, if, if you'd have told me that at the start, I'd have thought, no, that this is definitely broken. Um, I have, I have had a similar experience playing football uh, on grass where, yeah, just, you know, ankle goes completely yeah. flat out. And the first second and a half, well, I, rem- I remember specifically thinking in the first second and a half, oh, good, my foot is going to fall off. Um, and then a- about five seconds in thinking, actually, this might not be that bad, but I probably can't yeah. just jump up because I did make a bit of a fuss. And then and I had I'd sprained it a bit, but it's just, yeah. you know, I'm not saying that's what happened with Zverev. It was clearly bad. Like, you know, he wouldn't have... If he thought he could have strapped that up and served on one leg, I've absolutely no doubt he would have done. But I know because Nadal said afterwards that he was in the medical room with him, which I always think is weird. Well, I thought it was weird when he said it because there's not many players who could just be like, yeah, I'll just come in with you. Um, but they said he... Especially not Nadal, who's, who's obsessed about not letting anyone know what injuries he has. Yeah, exactly. It's always, always like, yeah, I've got a leg injury. And <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's so secretive, but then someone else is getting treatment and Nadal's storming in there. Nadal's in there for a consult. Um, yeah. But he said they were doing a, an ultrasound on, on, on uh, Sasha Verov's ankle, so they will have a vague idea of the level of damage already. Obviously, you know, ultrasounds aren't perfect you need to get an MRI you can't do that until the swelling's gone down a bit so, yeah yeah. You know, yeah they won't know the full extent I think we can rule them out of Wimbledon certainly I'd oh he su- won't be playing at Wimbledon there's, there's no I'd chance. be surprised I mean the US Open is only you know three months away if he's done ligament damage which is what I suspect he's done I suspect there is my one concern is and one of the well, Henry the lad I coach who's, who's had a serious ankle injury um, he he made a good point that he th- thought that it might not even be the ankle that it and this is where it might get seriously dangerous he thought it might be lower leg like oh, where wow. it went if, if you look and it might he said he thought it looked higher than the ankle um, uh, they talk about this in american football they talk about the high ankle sprain yeah and yeah it's those ligaments that go up your leg and yeah mm, yeah that could be quite serious but again we were looking at like a video and a still photograph and yeah, yeah it's, you know, it's, it's, it's it's yeah it's hard to um it's hard to do as I say, uh, difficult to elicit sympathy for Alexander Zverev, but I did have some. He, you know, the screams were very loud, um, and I, I actually had a bit of respect for him when he came back out on crutches, um, ostensibly to shake the umpire's hand. Like that was the first thing he came out to do, and you know, yeah. to sort of formally retire. Um, and Rafa gave him a big hug, and you know, that was, and then he sort of, you know, quite sweetly raised one crutch to the crowd as he walked off, and they yeah. cheered him, and you know. <sighs> There are certain moments that maybe humble people a bit. I don't know. I don't know if this will humble Sasha Rare, but Quite a smart move. I don't know if I'm going to be a bit cynical here, I suppose. Quite a smart move because he'll be back at the French and the French remember stuff like that. And, um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, quite possibly. Yeah. Um, anyway, he's out. Rafa Nadal is through. Uh, what we should talk about is the tennis because for three hours before that, Zverev and Nadal just beat seven bells out of each other. Um, the, the wider context for this is that it... It has been all day in Paris, and I woke up this morning and walked out the door and thought, oh, this is going to be unpleasant. So humid, completely overcast, clearly a thunderstorm on the way, and indeed it was raining. It started raining about 15 minutes before Nadal's Zverev started, and it was heavy, really humid conditions. And the roof on Chatrier, um, 
they put it on, obviously. It's a great thing. We got the match on. But they don't have, and I certainly never heard, um, a big air conditioning or dehumidifying or ventilating system. If you're at Wimbledon and they get the roof on, you'll hear basically big fans churning, mm-hmm. you know, to move the air through to yeah. deal with the humidity. And they don't have any of that. Now, I did notice the design of Chatteret is a bit different. It's kind of open at the sides, if you like. Yeah, you yeah. know, at the top of the stands, almost like someone's just taken a lid and, you know, roughly put it on. Yeah, because yeah. pigeons fly in and out of them. <laughs> but they needed a way to move the air through there because 98 minutes, I think the first set was, because they just couldn't get the ball through the court. I mean, Calvin, you'll be able to explain in probably better detail what humidity does to a tennis ball and to a tennis match on clay. Um, It fluffs it up a little bit. I don't think humidity in itself does a whole lot uh, of difference. Um, It's more the effect that it has on the players. Mm. Um, in that they find it harder to breathe. It's just muggy and sweaty, and yeah, the balls obviously get the, the players put them in their hands. Their hands are wet. They'll pick up a little bit more clay and mm. that kind of thing. It just Nadal. Kind of slows it Nadal down. by the end um, of the first set wasn't putting his second serve ball in his pocket because yeah, he was getting so wet. That. Yeah, I noticed that. Uh, I mean, look, it, it didn't. I was funny. I was before this. I was on a in a Twitter space with um, Miles, who does a, a really good podcast. Um, and they we were talking about it, and I said, look, was it still good to watch on TV? And I think most people said, yeah, it really was still good to watch on TV. Um, I mean, I think what we saw in the first set, and I know, Calvin, you'll have been on court, but it, Sasha Zverev made 15 of his 16 first first serves. So he was serving at 96% for the first eight games of the match or whatever. Like... When he does that, it's quite hard to beat. <laughs> oh yeah, he's he's serious. That's 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 the best of Zverev. Mm. Um, and it's funny because we were talking. I was talking with a player the other day about what what player. Because I bang on a lot about how you judge a player by their their middle level and their bottom level, not their top. And he said, mm. "Well, who who's got the best top level?" Zverev's got to be up there. Yeah. To be fair, if they play their best, if everything goes their way, who's tough to beat? Zverev, Zverev's definitely up there. I mean, the um, first the first six games, I would suggest, were Zverev's top level. His serve was yeah. almost perfect. His backhand, I mean, his backhand's really good. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Like, it's really yeah. good. But then what you got was then uh, uh, he was serving at 4-3. And in one game, you got all of the really bad bits of Zverev. He had three, three forehands that missed the baseline by 10 feet, 15 feet. Um, he had two double faults. And, like, one of the worst drop shots I've ever seen. Like, it was a short it was a short ball, you know, it was a decent serve that Rafa had just about got over. And it was a short ball, and he should have just belted it anywhere. And he tried to play a drop shot, and Rafa hit the winner on the service line. Like, he, he only had to come up half the court. It was... He just has no touch. That's no touch whatsoever, does he? I mean, I, I, I only saw the tie break. I came into the clubhouse. I saw the whole of the tie break mm. at the end of the first set. and Special tie break. Uh, yeah, but I think, as we said in our WhatsApp group, I think towards the end, I think from 5-2 on, yeah. he must have had five short balls. Didn't win any of the points. Yeah. He had two volleys. I think, on, I think on two of his set points, he had two volleys and missed yeah. them both. Um, and even the... Like the Nadal, the forehand, the running forehand that everyone was raving about. That four, put that seven, away. Six, four, yeah. You've got to put that away. <laughs> I, I know it's a great shot from Nadal, but you've got one of the you've got proper 
probably the best backhand in the world. Zverev, I'd say. Yeah. And you've got short. It's not. It's, it's shorter than short. That was a. That's what we'd call a finish. Yeah. Right. That's exactly and, what it was. I mean, just for people who haven't seen it. I mean, if you head to my Twitter, you'll find it. I posted a video, but he, you know, Nadal played a defensive shot on the backhand side from outside, but like both of his feet were outside both tram lines, and it was a sliding defensive backhand. You just get it back into court. And as you say, Zverev had a short backhand, which he then hit to the other corner. And Nadal read it relatively early, got there, and then hit an on-the-run cross-court pass, you know, that, that bounced, just nosedived after it got over the net. Um, given, I think what was amazing about it, yeah, as you say, Zverev should have put it away. But what was amazing about it was that Nadal had hit one forehand winner the entire set. Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine watching Rafa Nadal for 85, 90 minutes and not seeing him hit a four, more than one forehand winner. And to yeah. pull it out at that point, it was it was pretty stupid. But then he hit another one, didn't he? Because then later on, it might have been to win the set. Zverev yeah, had a it was. It was short a, a, forehand. Yeah. Like, just gave him it. Like, what are you doing? Like, <laughs> like it's just, it really it was rubbish from him mm. at that moment. Because as as a player... You're thinking the best you can hope for is that you get that. And, and yeah, you know, it's one of those people always go, oh, it's against Nadal. Like, look, this is the fourth best player in the world, or mm. ranking-wise. You've got to put short balls away. That was that was nonsense at the end of that tie-break from him. And and also, the argument, oh, it's Nadal. Well, you've got to hit the lines then. Like, if you like miss, miss if you have to miss. But, like, if it's Nadal, you have to go for a line rather than hit a conservative shot. And also, if... He read that forehand. He read that backhand well, the first one. Hmm. But he read it well because he knows what Zverev's going to do. Yeah. And if you play against players who are... If you play against good defenders, it's one of the basic tactics that, that tennis players have. If you play against players who defend well, who are fast, and you have finishing balls, you go back behind. Because what they tend to do is they set off early. Yeah. Fast players, they set off early. So you go back behind and then they, they'll tend not to do it. And Nadal knew that Zverev was going to do that. Mm. And that was Nadal's actually fascinating to watch on stuff like that. I, I sometimes when I'm watching Nadal, I'll do the the live rewind thing on my TV because yeah. you can see how early he goes. He goes really one, early. But there was one the other day. I forget who he was playing. Who did he play in the last round? Djokovic. Djokovic. It was yeah. It was Djokovic. Yeah. So he hit a backhand. He hit a backhand cross court when Djokovic came to the net. And then Djokovic has hit like a drop volley cross court off his forehand. Mm. And Nadal sprinted there and put it past him. And I remember thinking when he's hit it, that's the only shot that Djokovic could have hit. Yeah. And so I rewound it to see how early Nadal went. And Nadal hit his backhand and immediately started running forward. Yeah. So when he knows he's got it down at Djokovic's feet, he knows the only shot that Djokovic has got is the cross court backhand, is mm. the cross court drop shot. So what looks like extreme anticipate brilliant anticipation it's more that they figure out there's only one shot they've got here and yeah. and that's what that's what anticipation really is uh, in tennis it's not knowing what your opponent is going to do next it's knowing what they can't do yeah it, it's taking out the options and he knew that nadal knew that djokovic couldn't do anything else other mm. than that shot it, it, it was, I mean, he is a masterful player to watch, Nadal. What I think, you know, I've said this before, I think Nadal's the most underrated volleyer in tennis. Like, he, I think he's legitimately a decent volleyer. No, he is, yeah, yeah. And he, yeah. he gets himself, like, and in the second set against Zverev, his forehand was just pap, basically. He had nothing, because he said afterwards he couldn't generate any spin because the balls were so wet or humid. Um, 
and so he basically started playing a lot of drop shots and you know serving and volleying on big points and he really does have some sensational touch like I oh mean, he does yeah you're comparing yeah. it to Zverev I guess but it was yeah, special he, no he, he does have great touch and also he's the best decision maker of all time he yeah. doesn't you watch him and you you can watch five hours of Nadal and you won't go what are you doing Mm. Like you just won't do it. He might sometimes the execution can be off as it can with anybody, but the shot is always the right shot. Yeah. Apart from actually today when he played a couple of drop shots that I thought I'm not really sure why you're doing those. Um, mm. But um, yeah, he's yeah he's he's just tremendous on that front. Um, he's going to play Casper Rude in the final, uh, who saw off Marin Cilic in four sets, relatively comfortable in the end. Uh, he lost the first set, but then. Um, really took control of the match. There was a brief interruption um, when a woman with a uh, thousand and twenty-eight days later written on her T-shirt ran on and uh, chained herself. Well, chained herself. The cable tied herself to the net, which is a new one on me. Uh, I think there was a, a fifteen-minute delay. Players were taken off, and uh, then they came back on. And as I was leaving the site today, there was a police car uh, waiting for her. Um, think of that, whatever you think. I'm not sure we're going to get into it. Um, what is interesting, I'm not sure the Chilich rude match stands up hugely to us investigating it, but Rude has the better chance of beating Nadal out of those two, right? Yeah, yeah, he does. Quick one, what what was the 1,028 days later? Climate emergency protest. All oh, right, okay, fair yeah. enough. Um, well, yeah, my thoughts exactly. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, like, I'm quite an environmentalist, but yeah, that's a new one on me. Um yeah, he definitely. Yeah, Rude's had the better chance of beating um, Nadal. Nadal usually just chops Chilich up whenever they play, doesn't he? Mm, yeah, exactly. Um, we'll maybe spend a bit more time tomorrow talking about the um, men's final, what that might hold. Um, I'll just 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 quick nip in there about. Uh, I was going to say about Nadal. It was quite funny because when the tiebreak was being played today, I was watching it in the players' area in Surbiton. And there are a few coaches there, um, and it, it's funny how this command that Nadal has on people since during the tiebreak. One of the coaches, a Spanish guy who speaks really good English, he said, you know, thing is with Nadal now, he's he's just locked down and he's not going to miss. He's just come into that and he won't miss. He's not. There's no chance he's missing a ball. And on the next point, three or four shots in, Nadal netted a forehand. And the guy just didn't acknowledge it. And, like, you know, and it's like, yeah, I kind of get what you mean. He does do that. But also, like, when is... When is Nadal, it's not like Nadal ever is spraying errors no. everywhere. Exactly. That's what he does, but it, it's just one of those strange anomalies that we just take. When Nadal makes an error, we ignore the errors. Yeah, like today when he played a couple of drop shots that were bad decisions. They, yeah. you know, just he's just to keep us honest and make sure yeah, that yeah. he can keep us honest. Um, I think we should move on to the women's final, which is tomorrow. Uh, it's a three o'clock start here in Paris, so two p.m. Uh, over in the UK. Coco Goff up against Iga Shontek. Um, as I wrote in the I newspaper today, which I would recommend buying the I weekend tomorrow, by the way, because I think it's only 70p. It's 110 pages, and it's better than all the other weekend papers. And I think if you don't normally buy a paper, just try it. Anyway, I wrote something saying, four years ago, Coco Goff won French Open juniors here. And I went back and looked at the draw, and in the semi-final, she beat Leila Fernandez, and in the final, she beat Katie McAnally, one of her good friends, um, fellow American. But... McAnally had knocked out and, in fact, saved a match point against, in the semi-final, Igor Svontek. Um, so there's clearly a generation coming through here to do some damage on clay. Um, 
amazing Calvin to have a 21-year-old against an 18-year-old in a French Open final. And it, it's also definitely the final that this tournament needed, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I think so, yeah. Um, I'm interested to see how it goes. I th- I, but I, I'm, I'm a bit cautious because I think earlier in the year before Schwantek had gone on her massive run, so earlier the year or last year maybe, I don't know, um, these two played each other and I really hyped it up and, and Schwantek ended up winning it about four in love or something. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm a bit cautious about hyping it too much, but I am looking forward to it. Uh, yeah, they played in Miami uh, earlier this year in March yeah. and it was 6-3, 6-1, but it was in the middle of you know, probably the greatest run of the 21st century. It will, in fact, be, if Shantek wins tomorrow, the joint greatest winning streak in the 21st century in the WTA, uh, joint level with Venus Williams um, and her streak around the very beginning of the century. Um, in terms of what Goff can do to hurt Shantek or upset Shantek, um, I mean, she's the bigger server for a start. Yeah, she's big, so she can do damage. There's no question. She's mm. she probably, I don't know. I'd say off the top of my head, she might hit a little bit bigger overall than mm. Shvontek does. Um, this Shvontek's probably a better match. Well, she is a better match player than Goff right now, but mm. I think that's something that Goff will sort out. Um, but I I mean, what I would say, I very much doubt this is the last time that we're going to see these two in the final of a major. Mm. You certainly hope so. Um, she's the youngest Grand Slam finalist since Maria Sharapova in 2004, Coco Goff, who's uh, 18 and just a couple of months. I think what has been so impressive about her throughout is just how kind of calm she's been. Um, she, she said, Someone said, do you get nervous? And she said, well, honestly, I sometimes wake up a little bit nervous, but then I go for a walk and I kind of feel a bit better. Um, and she also talks about how it's not the end of the world if she loses. Now, I, I sometimes think that's quite a dangerous mindset. I sometimes don't like... Like, I, I really like the sort of, I have to win, like, you know, this this is be-all, end-all. But I think what that sometimes can create is when you then face a bit of failure, like you lose the first set, it can create sort of crisis mode. If you're If you're that sort of hyped up about winning and then you're set down, if you can't cope with that, and I think you, Calvin, you'll probably know players who are like that. It, it can just create massive crises. It's more just something that we talk about, and again, it's different levels. Uh, but we spoke a lot about the lad who I coach, Henry, and his partner are currently on a, I don't know what it is, maybe a twenty-match um, winning streak at mm. doubles. And and we were talking today with his partner's coach and the two lads about the what ifs. What, what we can set the game plan and everything. What what if it doesn't work out today? What happens if we find ourselves a, a set and a breakdown? What are we going to do? And I think that's what what players don't often think about the what if question. We could come on with the tactic, and I'm going to compete. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. This is what I'm going to do. But what if that's not working? Hmm. And and that is hugely important. And that's where the best. That's what the best players deal with. It's hmm. what. That's why Djokovic is, as I keep saying the best match player of all time in any sport that there's nobody who deals with the what ifs more than Djokovic does. Mm. I think as well, I mean, without getting off topic too much, you know, it must be different in doubles and singles as well, because there must be a dynamic in doubles at a sit down, you know, it, it, do you, do you kind of employ one of them to be the hype man and one of them to be the, the kind of calm man? 
you usually do. You use you don't no, you don't really tell them to do that, but there usually is one person who drives the energy. Mm. I, I know that, for example, in Salisbury and Ram, that Salisbury is uh, sorry, Ram is the the one is the driver. Yes, yeah. and that's not to mean that either is the better player. Just one will usually be more vocal and, mm. and that kind of thing. So, um, yeah. And presumably that. in those kind of what-if moments, that's when you need your vocalizer to sort of step up. It's energy. It's always energy in doubles. Like, that's the main thing. And that's what you'll always find. It's one of the key um, aspects of the British double system is energy. Mm. There's, there's, there's always plenty of energy on court. But, yeah. Uh, but I think in singles, it's a big thing as well. What you say is almost what you say to yourself. Hmm. that you can rather than getting caught up in oh this is happening what's ha- what's happening why why what am i doing why is this not working to go right what what do i do now then it's doing the best with what you can in the here and now hmm. um i mean goff has faced a bit of adversity in this tournament Iga Shrontek has, has talked almost to death about what she's going to do when she finally gets in trouble and and she talked about the the quarterfinal actually when she beat um Jen Quinn Wen having lost the first set and how she was glad to have had that kind of experience from a, a mental perspective. Um, I, I would say that Coco Goff's results, I mean, she's not dropped a set thus far in the tournament. You know, in, in some ways, she's gone under the radar in that sense. But against Martina Trevisan, she did not start very well. And she was getting wound up by Trevisan's grunt. And she was complaining to the umpire about that. They had a bit of a fight about a mark, or quite a long fight, actually. And I thought, oh, hang on, are we seeing what happens to Coco Goff under pressure? And actually she just kind of worked it out and stayed with it and didn't let Trevor Sand phase her too much and I guess when you win a junior title at 14 and she was the youngest junior winner of a Grand Slam title since Hingis I think and then you do what she did to Venus at Wimbledon she's someone who seems to absolutely love the pressure like she you know she talks about being a social activist and you know during the Black Lives Matter stuff in America, she went to a, I guess, kind of, kind of rally near where she lived and gave a big speech. It wasn't like that was forced into her. That wasn't losing a first set. You know, that was her choosing to be the centre of attention. I wonder if that attitude kind of translates onto the court to a kind of calmness and, a, and an owning of the moment. Yeah, she. I don't think she ever feels out of place. I think that's one of the things. And yeah. uh, it's one of those as well. She seems... She's clearly extremely intelligent, mm. um, but she also seems like she's a pretty cool person to be around. Yeah, as well. Everyone seems to like her. I know that I'll, I'll see on. She's quite active on social media, I think. But you can tell it's her yes. on her social media. It's not. It's definitely not um, a management or that kind of thing. Mm. I don't. She's she's somehow managed to get into that place where she's very competitive and also very well liked, and it's yeah. usually one or the other. Yes, and and I think I said this the other day, but it bears repeating. She doesn't roam around with a massive entourage. There, are, you know, her mum and dad are there. Yeah. There's quite a few people in her box. There will be more people in her box for the final. I guarantee. There's one bloke will definitely be there. Um, he's <laughs> <laughs> uh, well. He's got about nine players in this tournament, hasn't he? I'm amazed <laughs> that he manages to do anything. Weird that he suddenly wasn't coaching um, Stefanos Tsitsipas. <laughs> uh, the, the other day when, when one of his other players won that um, yeah I don't know what you're supposed to do there you could do the Tony Nadal of being like I'm actually going to be really neutral in this but I'm going to sit front row of the presidential box and get in everyone's I'm face going to sit front row on, on whoever's winning at the time <laughs> right. um, uh, but anyway uh, what I was going to say is that I've seen her walking around the site a lot this week because she's incidentally 
She's also in the doubles final on Sunday, which, you know, with Jess Pagula, and they, they may well win it. Um, but every time I've seen her wandering around, she's pretty much on her own or with quite a small group. She, You know, she's super independent. I don't think she thinks she's big time. She wears a bucket hat to press conferences, which I can really respect. Um, I think she's just massively good news. And I, I don't know who I want to win. I, I think the ideal would be... Goff wins this and Shontek wins Wimbledon because just from a selfish perspective, British people don't know who Igor Shontek is yet. They really don't. Yeah, I'd I'd like Goff to win tomorrow. Um, and I think Shontek's great. Um, as we spoke about last night, I'm getting a bit... We're getting to a bit there where like, is this is this good for the women's game mm. that, that somebody's dominating so much? Yeah. Um, and and you don't want to see that. I don't mind somebody being the best, but you you, you want competition, mm. I think. Um, because you have that weird period. We're in that weird period now, aren't we, where somebody's dominating, but nobody really knows about it outside of the sport. Yeah. If we kind of get she wins Wimbledon and the US Open, for example, and tomorrow, then it'll be one of those where she then will become a superstar because everybody will start knowing there's this this girl in tennis who's just winning everything. Yeah. Um, yeah. Exactly. It's yeah. It's. It's going to be interesting to see how the, the summer pans out from that perspective. Um, if you had to pick a winner and predict a winner, Calvin, I mean, would you stick with Shontek? I think Shontek's going to win, probably, yeah. Um, mm. Comfortably? Yeah. yeah, I could see it being like a four and three or something like that. I'm slightly concerned that it might be something like that. I desperately hope it's not, um, but just for the good of the game and for the good of Coco Goff, but... I'm slightly concerned it might. I mean, be when you were when you a really good women's major final, yeah, aren't we? Well, we've, we've had some had stinkers, one. that's for sure. Yeah, and, and and long doesn't always mean good either, as we saw at Wimbledon last year. <laughs> uh, yes, yes, agreed. Um, well, that is, of course, as I mentioned, uh, two p.m. UK time, three p.m. local. Goodness knows what time. Um, if you're in the US, incidentally, because I know we have a lot of US listeners, it is on, I believe, NBC in the US. I know the French Open hasn't been on free-to-air TV uh, in the States, but it is on NBC. Um, and then I think it's on delay, uh, so it'll be like a 2 p.m. broadcast on Tennis Channel if you want to avoid the result and watch it at a reasonable time. But um, that's good news as well, just for kind of reaching a few more people uh, we'll be back tomorrow with yet another podlet to look back at that match and also look forward to nadal versus rude uh, thanks very much for listening sports social podcast network